You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, everyone. It's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. This episode is brought to you by our Patreon members. Thank you so much. And if you're not a member, consider joining. Members get extra episodes just for Patreon subscribers and all our episodes ad-free. Membership starts at just $2 a month. Go to patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl for more info. And as always, thanks for listening. You find yourself on the battlefield in hand-to-hand combat with an elephant. To his astonishment and terror and lasting delight, Sam saw a vast shape crash out of the trees and come careering down the slope, big as a house, much bigger than a house. It looked to him a gray-clad moving hill. On he came, straight toward the watchers, and then swerved aside in the nick of time, passing only a few yards away, rocking the ground beneath their feet, his great legs like trees, enormous sail-like ears spread out, long snout upraised like a huge serpent about to strike, his small red eyes raging, his upturned horn-like tusks were bound with bands of gold and dipped with blood, his trappings of scarlet and gold flapped about him in wild tatters, the ruins of what seemed seemed a very war tower, lay upon his heaving back, smashed in his furious passage through the woods, and high upon his neck still desperately clung a tiny figure, the body of a mighty warrior, a giant among the swirtings. On the great beast thundered, blundering in blind wrath through pool and thicket, arrows skipped and snapped harmlessly about the triple hide of his flanks. Men of both sides fled before him, but many he overtook and crushed to the ground. Soon he was lost to view, still trumpeting and stamping far away. What became of him, Sam never heard. Whether he escaped to roam the wild for a time until he perished far from his home or was trapped in some deep pit, or whether he raged on until he plunged in the great river and was swallowed up. Sam drew a deep breath. An oliphant it was, he said. So there are oliphants, and I have seen one. What a life. But no one at home will ever believe me. Well, if that's over, I'll have a bit of sleep. That was from Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers, when Samwise Gamgee sees an oliphant. You can't doubt that J.R.R. Tolkien had a depth and breadth of imagination that few can match in any genre, 
But his vision of the mighty Oliphant is taken not from his own mind, but directly from history. Everything about it, from the gilded tusks dripping blood, to the war tower and the warrior clinging to the animal's back, to the arrows snapping off in its impenetrable skin and its tendency to trample both friend and foe underfoot, right down to the colorful trappings he wore, all of it comes straight from real battlefields of the ancient world. This episode is not for the faint of heart. If you're sensitive to descriptions of animal cruelty or if you're listening with kids, be forewarned. Some of this material was difficult for us to read and it may be difficult for you to hear. But for those of you who can, we call upon you now to bear witness, to hear the story and mourn with us the passing of that gray ghost of the ancient battlefield, the awesome and great-hearted elephant of war. I'm Jenny Williamson. And I'm Jen McMenemy. And this is Ancient History Fangirl. When we recorded our first episode, How to Survive a Siege, we were talking about Carthage at the end of the Punic War, and there was an elephant in the room. A war elephant, Jenny. There was a war elephant in the room. Something we're learning about doing this podcast is that there is so often an elephant in the room, and sometimes the elephant is the Praetorian Guard, in which case, hey guys... Here's your donative, please don't kill me. And sometimes the elephant in the room actually is an elephant. And Jenny was reading this quote about the Carthaginians when we talked about how to survive a siege part one. And it mentioned elephants as part of what the Carthaginians gave up to the Romans as part of their terms of peace. And I asked her, what is up with those elephants? And I had really no idea. I just kind of vaguely knew that the Carthaginians used elephants in war, but that's the extent of what I knew. And I said, I guess there were elephants. I don't know. But I did remember this all elephant scene from Tolkien, and suddenly I really, really wanted to know all about the elephants. So then we fell down this epic rabbit hole. And get ready, because it's time to talk about the elephant in the room and on the battlefield. And this episode owes such a great deal to this one book, War Elephants by John Kistler. This is such an incredibly well-researched book. The writer even has a Mahout's license. And so many of the vivid details and stories that we found for this podcast come from that book. So thank you, John Kistler, the elephant god, wherever you are. So we're going to start off with the first war elephants. And no one knows when elephants were first used in war. In the Rig Veda, a collection of Sanskrit hymns believed to date from around 1500 to 1200 BC, the god Idra rides a pure white elephant, intriguingly named, among other things, Nagamala, which meant the fighting elephant. People in India were among the earliest to train elephants for war. It was mentioned in the Mahabharata, one of two great Sanskrit epics which most scholars believe originates from around the 8th or 9th century BC. While historians think the epic was first written down in the 8th or 9th centuries BC, the earliest fragments of the text that we have are from around the 4th century BC. Eyewitness stories of elephants in Indian armies from the time of Alexander the Great also date to the 4th century. One recurring theme that we came across in research is that a lot of modern-day historians think that elephants in battle are a bad idea. They're unpredictable, gimmicky, and are just as likely to trample your own troops as the enemies. But generations of ancient generals would disagree. War elephants were very sought after and were frequently the deciding factor in tough battles. One medieval author, and I cannot track down who actually said this, but it's in The Art of War in Ancient India and a bunch of other places. This quote just kept propping up. An army without elephants is as despicable as a forest without a lion, a kingdom without a king, or his valor unaided by weapons. The thing is, there's a right way and a very, very wrong way to use your war elephants, and in this episode, you'll see examples of both. There are several things that make elephants unique as war animals. 
first, the war elephant's job was to be an actual combatant. Elephants were routinely trained to kill both people and other elephants. In addition, unlike horses, your war elephant could not be bred. It had to be caught in the wild and trained. The ancient sources are unanimous on this, and there are two reasons we came across. First, It takes about 20 to 40 years for an elephant to grow into maturity and the temperament that make it a good war animal. Knowledgeable sources from the ancient world say that a good war elephant doesn't come into its own until about the age of 40. I mean, talk about that for like a middle life career. I think that the idea is you want to capture them at around 20 and train them for a while until they're around 40 is when they they really hit their own as a war animal. Yeah. Mother elephants stay pregnant for up to two years and the calf nurses for about six years. And that's a long time to feed and house these animals before you can even start training them. Raising elephants requires decades of upfront investment, both in time and in money. Second, John Kistler states that, quote, a wild elephant that is strongly broke will always fear man, whereas a calf born in captivity will never fear man and therefore will never be truly trustworthy to humans. So to build your war elephant core, first you have to capture an elephant. Those who used elephants in war preferred the aggressive, vigorous males with large tusks, the most dangerous to catch. You can't just throw a rope around an elephant or herd it into a pit and snare it because an elephant can win in a tug of war battle with a hundred people. You're not going to be able to put a rope around it and and take it. And if you did drive it into a snare, then you have to get this unwilling, unhappy elephant out of that snare. So in some ancient cultures, people would build a funnel-shaped corridor starting out wide and narrowing down to a gate that opens into a corral. You build this trap near where you know wild elephants hang out, and you bait it with a tame female elephant, exactly the kind of bait a strong, young, virile male elephant will go for. The male elephants see the female, run down the funnel into the corral, and then you shut the gate behind them. And now you have some elephants to train for war. The Arthashastra, an Indian book on statescraft that was basically Machiavelli's Il Principe in the ancient world, has a lot to say about the training of war elephants. Once you have some wild elephants in your trap, here's what you do. And this is your first warning. Some of what's in this section about the training of war elephants is disturbing. I was telling my dad about this episode a while ago on the phone, and I mentioned some part of this story that I actually thought was kind of innocuous because I've been doing all this research, and my dad thought it was horrifying. So I promised I would warn him in the podcast whenever things got too hairy. So this is a warning for my dad. Shout out to Captain Tom. Right, my dad um, My dad is an airline pilot, retired airline pilot, so Jen calls him Captain Tom. This is your first warning, <laughs> Dad, starting with the next sentence that I'm about to say. Your first step is to starve the elephant into submission. The elephants you're working with are the young, strong males, ideally with big tusks, and these will be completely impossible to work with unless you do this first. So your second step is to put the elephant in a place where it can observe tame elephants. Ideally, this would be a paddock or a stall, and you tie the wild elephant so that it can see the tame ones obeying and eating. Elephants are smart. They'll follow that example. Once an elephant will let a person on its back, you're ready for your next step which is to turn the elephant into a war machine. Kistler goes on to describe witnessing logging elephants in Southeast Asia executing very precise moves. The closest surviving analogy to the war elephant is the logging elephant, combining extraordinary strength and intelligence augmented by great skill instilled through training. What the martial arts sports are to human combat, the dangerous work of the elephant logging is to the elephant warfare. The mahout operates the elephant just as if it were a machine. 
Master Mahout's issue a rapid and continuous stream of commands, kicks behind the ear, touches with the hook, and even whole body movements. The Mahout's actions mirror the bewildering flurry of hand and foot movements of an expert bulldozer operator. The best battle elephants were undoubtedly trained to a similar degree of perfection. Elephants weren't just big, dumb tanks to be used in battle. They were really smart and could be trained to perform very complex moves. The Arthashastra describes training elephants to jump over obstacles, make turns, do zigzags, and do serpentine maneuvers, trample enemy soldiers, fight other elephants, and attack walls and fortifications. They could also be trained to stab with their tusks or pick people up and toss them around with their trunks. I mean, that's terrifying, Jenny. Yeah. I just, the idea that you're training this this lovely, lovely elephant to just be a people-killing machine. I think we think of elephants as sort of gentle giants, and there is definitely a lot of truth to that, but it's not the whole truth. John Kistler in War Elephants had this to say about the darkness that lives in every elephant. Five times I've witnessed an elephant try to kill a human, and many more times I've attended funerals to hear firsthand accounts of the deaths of mahouts. The mahout is the driver... He says this is by far the most frequent victim. The natural attack is to knock the victim to the ground and then finish the job. The onslaught is very fast and incredibly athletic. Books often create neat lists of the means of attack as separate moves. Goring, biting, trampling, kicking, grabbing with the trunk, and more. But when trying to recall an actual attack, the impression is more of a rapid blur of disparate movements. The last attack I witnessed was, in a curious way, the most enlightening. For no apparent reason, an 11-month-old calf, a female, knocked a 70-year-old woman, a tourist, to the ground and then relentlessly headbutted her as if going for the coup de grace. What was startling here was how a cute little calf illustrated just how deeply innate are the elephant's offensive capabilities. So elephants have a dark side, and they're highly trainable. And there's another layer on top of this. Elephants won't naturally tolerate battlefield conditions. I mean, that's really fair enough. Their instinct is to either go berserk or to flee, which, coincidentally, Jenny, are my instincts. (laughs) (laughs) And when that happened, they'd trample or attack both friend and foe. One of the most dangerous things on the battlefield could easily become your own army's elephants. So it isn't enough for your war elephant to be smart or be able to do all these maneuvers. They also have to be tough. You have to get them used to pain and loud noises so they'll stand firm in battle. And here's how the ancient sources talk about doing this. And here's another warning for my dad. Captain Tom. (laughs) Now is the time to turn down the volume, go make yourself some tea, and maybe put some whiskey in that tea, and then come back. Okay, here goes. The typical method was to tie the animal to a post and hit and stab it with axes, swords, and spears, not hard enough to seriously wound it, all while banging drums, sounding trumpets, and making loud noises. Some trainers would kill other animals in front of their elephants to get them used to blood. Others would bring in prisoners and get the elephants to trample them to death to get them proficient in trampling people. Elephants would then be paired with a driver or a mahout, and they'd form a very strong relationship. So strong, in fact, that it wasn't unusual for an elephant to frenzy if its driver was killed in battle. If something happened to the mahout, the elephant might rush to defend them, carry their body from the battlefield, or lapse into a depression so extreme they'd starve themselves to death. And just as an aside, lest you think that war elephants were just uniformly abused, this actually isn't true. This method of training them is obviously horribly abusive, and so is putting them in war to begin with, but they were also revered, and when their owners knew their value, they were often treated very, very well. Your war elephant is a very valuable, very expensive beast. Each one represents decades of effort and training, and smart generals made sure they only got the best care on campaign. 
Kistler tells us of how the Mughal rulers in India treated their elephants. The elephants had their own tents while on campaign in battle. Their keepers would give them full baths and rub them down with pumice and coconut oil every night. Then the king would inspect the seven bravest elephants, making sure they were, quote, clean, healthy, and plump. Each elephant had its own silk cord, which the mahouts would use to show the king the elephant had been gaining weight. They also got the very best food, and they got sugar and even alcohol. Elephants love to drink alcohol, apparently. Again, this is why I feel like a lot of like kinship with these elephants. Right. The tendency to frenzy in battle and the love of alcohol. Look, they're totally like they could be an excellent warrior and they could kill everyone or they could just go berserk and they also like to get drunk. Those elephants could drink you under the table. Well, I, I should hope so. Let's, let's just say that. They've got a few stone on both of us. I'm sure they have good tolerance. I'd be interested about the booze to look at the water conditions because in the ancient world, a lot of times it was more sanitary to drink wine or booze than it was to drink actual water and I wonder if the water wasn't as good to drink so they were giving them like better things you know that's actually a really good point and I don't know about that but I do know that elephants required a lot of water both to drink and to wash themselves with mm-hmm. And sometimes they were taken into really arid conditions. They were being marched a long way through a desert or something like that. So yeah, that was an issue. And I'm not sure if people gave their elephants alcohol in replacement of water, but it wouldn't surprise me if that happened sometimes. What a hangover they must have had. Those elephants were probably in a really bad mood a lot, unless they were drunk. (laughs) (laughs) With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Bruna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore all of the weird little questions and conspiracies of the universe in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything. Everything has an explanation. We hope. That is what we're here to figure out. We will dive into the science behind many popular conspiracy theories, such as vaccines causing autism, flat earth theory, and was the moon landing fake? And if so, why the heck would anyone even do that? But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, what made the Vikings go berserk, and can I control my co-host with MKUltra? Wait, what? (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts. So let's take a look at the equipment, armament, and crew that a war elephant would have. And this would vary throughout time periods and cultures, but we'll just kind of give you a general overview here. The earliest war elephants probably didn't wear armor, and there are examples in ancient times when elephants were deliberately sent into battle without it for the sake of speed. Elephants can run about 15 miles per hour. And as for crew, 
The very first elephant riders probably sat on the animal's bareback. The driver usually sat at the neck, signaling the elephant with long and short poles and hooks. There would usually be a driver and at least one warrior. More frequently, there would be several, armed with long spears, slings, or bows and arrows. Sometimes, even guns and small cannons, depending on the time period. Armor might fully cover the animal or might protect only the head and parts of the trunk. The armor might be made of steel plates sewn onto leather or quilted fabric, or scale armor with the scales facing upward and not downward because attacks on elephants would come from below and not above. The armor might be very ornate if the rider was a king or general, or if the rider wasn't that high-ranking, it might just be plain iron. In many cultures, elephants were outfitted with forehead plates to protect the head. And sometimes the elephant's trunk would be partially armored, but not completely armored, because the elephant needed the trunk to be mobile so it could be used as a weapon, which again, just terrifies me. Yeah. Elephants might be outfitted with swords, spikes, maces, and even lengths of chain on their trunks or tusks. And they use these to deadly effect. Again, Jenny, I'm seeing so much kinship here. I would totally use my trunk that way. I mean, I haven't noticed that you have a trunk. (laughs) Maybe you just use really great camouflaging makeup. (laughs) (laughs) Ancient sources mention that elephants are capable of tossing a man in the air with their trunks and slicing him in half with their swords. And sometimes their swords were poisoned. Sometimes the tusks of the bravest elephants were gilded in gold, like those of Tolkien's Oliphant, and we actually have an example of that from history, which we'll tell you about later. In India, elephants were often saddled with a howdah, a special double seat with one chair in front and the other behind. These could be very ornate if the rider was high status. The seat could hold several warriors, as few as three or as many as seven, with a driver seated on the neck. In Southeast Asia, because elephant back duels were such a big thing, the head warrior would ride on the elephant's neck in battle, and the driver would ride on his butt, facing backwards. I mean, this does not seem to me like a good way to ride, but that's just me. Because if you look at an elephant's butt, it kind of, it slopes down quite a bit, right? So these guys must have been hanging on for dear life. I know, it doesn't really seem sensible, but there you have it. Yeah, but the head warrior had to have his elephant duel. Yeah, I understand (laughs) that he has to have his elephant duel, but don't you want the person driving the elephant to have the best position? No. Anyway. I guess not. Let's figure out how they drove that elephant. (laughs) There would be long ropes in the front and back holding the howda in place, and the driver would stick his legs underneath these ropes, you know, probably getting his circulation cut off, and hang on for dear life, using long and short poles to signal the elephant. So what was it like to ride an elephant? Here's another firsthand account from Kistler. Quote, I discovered that elephant back was the most damnably uncomfortable mode of travel. An elephant has four legs and what might be called independent suspension for each of them. I remembered too late the peculiar character of the elephant's walk, which is that it raises each foot from the ground separately and slowly and puts it down with great deliberation before the next mighty foot is lifted. That meant that on my ride, I had four separate shocks and a tilt in four directions for each complete pace the animal took. You just get seasick real fast. Yeah. (laughs) We need some Dramamine. Worse still was that the howdah in which I was sitting was kind of a box, uncovered and uncushioned, and very hard indeed. So if he thought it was uncomfortable riding in a howdah, imagine how uncomfortable it would have been to ride in a war tower. This is a thing that actually happened. War towers were common for hundreds if not thousands of years, appearing on ancient Greek, Carthaginian, Roman, Numidian, and Indian elephants. These towers were usually made of wood sometimes with hides stretched across for added protection. The towers could carry as many as 12 to 14 warriors, 
But in most accounts, war elephants carried between three and four soldiers. In addition to the driver and warriors, elephants sometimes had a ground crew, as few as four. The Arthashastra meant as many as 15 to protect the elephant's legs and belly. According to ancient sources, one of the most terrifying sights to see on an ancient battlefield was a full-grown elephant in must. The word must comes from an Urdu word that means intoxicated. And when a male elephant is in this state, naturally, he's completely taken over by his hormones. He becomes extremely aggressive and is driven to both fight and mate. It's kind of like being in heat. So male elephants and must were extremely valuable in war, and so were the skilled drivers who could control them in that state. Elephants and must were so valuable that steps were taken to provoke this state deliberately. Mahouts would often feed their elephants alcohol and drugs and play loud drums and ring bells in their camps before a battle to induce the elephants into a state of raging fury. Many cultures would hang bells on their elephants. The Mahouts could ring the bells both to strike fear into the enemy and to enrage the elephants further. And I just feel bad for the elephants. Like, why you gotta put bells on them? That was the detail that my dad didn't like, the bells. In Southeast Asia, the alcohol fed to elephants before battle sometimes contained human gall. Now you're messing with their alcohol? I am not pleased. I mean, this is not the kind of cocktail you want to roll up to a bar and order. Can I get some vodka and gall? See, now I see why they're pissed off in battle. And now that we have our war elephant caught and trained and pissed off and a tower full of warriors and a mahout and it's got its ground crew to protect it. And we want to establish here, too, that this elephant is is drunk. (laughs) (laughs) He's drunk and he's been given the bad booze, guys. Like, first (laughs) off, not enough water. He's going to have a hangover. And they put gall in his booze. Like, literally, that is the most galling thing I've heard today. (laughs) Who likes a pun? Oh, God. Okay, moving on. (laughs) So let's move on. We've got this elephant. He's got swords for its tusks. It's got a chain for its trunk. And it's outfitted in heavy plate armor. Jenny, it's time that I ride my elephant into war. What would that be like to face that animal in battle? And I know someone who can tell us all about it. Do you? I do. The person I regularly impersonate on Tinder dates, Alexander the Great. Of course you do. My name is Alexander the Great. Please buy me a drink. You know you want to. (laughs) If you want Jenny the Great to stop, we do (laughs) actually have a way you can buy us a drink. We have a Kofi account. So just buy her a drink. You can can (laughs) say it's coffee or you can tell her to go have a drink and continue impersonating Alexander the Great on the streets of New York. (laughs) Alexander the Great inherited his throne at the age of 20, around 336 BC. For the next 12 years, he embarked on a campaign of conquest, expanding his empire from the Indus River to the Adriatic Sea. He founded 20 cities, naming all of them after himself. As you do. (laughs) And was undefeated in battle. Alexander surrounded himself with great military minds generals, nobles, and royal advisors, his most trusted companions. When he died at the age of 32, in bed from a fever and not on the battlefield, which must have disappointed him greatly, his companions asked who among them he would leave his empire to. His answer? To the strongest. This really reminds me, going back to our siege episode into the Trojan War, of the catalyst for the beginning of the Trojan War in mythology is said to be the apple that the goddess of discord gave to the three main Olympian goddesses, and the apple was inscribed with to the fairest. And this sort of reminds me of what happened with the mythologizing of Alexander's last words. What's going to happen is this is going to kick off a major fight, much like the Trojan War. And I'm sure after Alexander's death, they they obviously wanted him to be a legend. And that's one way to do it. Dropping 
a gift like that then forces all these people to fight to prove that they are the fairest or the strongest. So this kicks off about 50 years of war and the eventual founding of four mighty dynasties among the smoking ruins of Alexander's empire, and war elephants played a pivotal role. A thorough account of the War of the Didache is beyond the purview of this episode. Although, Jenny, we totally should do an episode on that. Yeah, we definitely should, because the people in the War of the Didache have some of the greatest names. It's like... Antigonus the One-Eyed and Demetrius the Besieger. We should have our own War of the Diadochi names. We really should. Like, I don't know. What's your War of the Diadochi name, Jen? Jen the Researcher? (laughs) Jenny the Pizza Eater. (laughs) I think you're just Jenny the Great. We've already been over this. Right. Jenny slash Alexander the Great. Jenny the Great, winner of Tinder. Um, (laughs) I am not winning at Tinder. Let's just be very clear on that. So anyway, we're not going to go into a whole overview of the War of the Didache, but I can give you a sense of things by following one of the very special corps of warriors from the moment they joined Alexander's army until they met their fate. I am referring, of course, to the war elephants of King Porus. So by 326 BC, Alexander the Great had crossed the Hellespont with 120 ships, been welcomed as a liberator in Egypt, seized the jewel of Babylon in his fist, and hounded his enemy Darius III to his death. Then he swore to march to the ends of the world and the great outer sea. And King Porus was just kind of the guy in his way. King Porus ruled a kingdom called Parava, I'm probably mispronouncing that, in what today is the Punjab region in northern India. Today, it's called the Land of Five Rivers, and one of those rivers played a pivotal role in the battle I'm about to tell you about. In King Porus's day, the Greeks knew this river as the Hydaspes. Porus was known as a very tall man and a distinguished warrior, and when he heard that Alexander was coming, his first move was to try to pay him off, but Alexander wanted war. The monsoons had flooded the river that day. Porus's elephants stood waiting for Alexander, lined up along the banks in all their regalia, and they must have been a sight. The mahouts had painted colorful geometric patterns on the elephant's skin using powdered mineral crystals. The elephants wore armor made of hardened leather sewn over quilted cloth with plate armor on their foreheads and trunks. Alexander must have been pissing his pants. I mean, yeah. (laughs) In fact, most likely he was pissing his pants because this was not the first time he had run into elephants on the battlefield. And the last time, five years ago, he'd pissed his pants then too. This was at the Battle of Gagamela, which I keep wanting to call the Battle of Gargamel, (laughs) but I'm not going to call it that. I'm going to call it the Battle of Gagamela, fighting King Darius III of Persia. And in the run-up to that battle, Darius had ordered his troops to spend weeks stamping the fields in front of his city flat so his chariots could run there unimpeded. His plan was to string his 15 war elephants along the front line, backed up by 100 war chariots each. Alexander got to the battlefield and saw the elephants for the first time and was completely stymied. He did not know what these creatures were or how to fight them. He immediately called a halt and went back to the drawing board, completely redoing his battle strategy. And he might not have realized it, but this was actually the best thing he could have done. And have you ever wondered, Jen, how much of Alexander's success was just getting lucky? Yeah, I mean, (laughs) totally. Alexander the Great, getting lucky, circa 356 BC. This is why with the Tinder dates, he gets lucky all the time. I mean, maybe, maybe it's a good luck charm. I don't know. Just being, being Alexander is a good luck charm. I'd believe that. But he did burn out pretty young. Like he died by 32. Right. All that luck tends to wear on you. Well, but maybe you exhaust it. Like maybe if he'd had less lucky breaks, he might have made it to 60. 
He's like a cat. He's he's lucky all the time until he's really not. Poor Alex. I know. While Alexander had retreated his tent to, I don't know, have a full-on freak out and maybe change his pants, King Darius kept his troops standing in formation. See, Darius did not know what was going on. Alexander could have been planning a surprise nighttime attack. Darius couldn't afford to drop his guard. That would have left his city exposed. His army was left standing around, waiting for the other shoe to drop all night. Ancient sources tell us that when Alexander finally did go to the battlefield the next morning, the elephants were nowhere to be seen. When Alexander won that battle, they found the 15 elephants were back at Darius's camp, well out of way of the fighting. And this has always been a bit of a mystery. What happened to the elephants? So to get our answer, we turn to John Kistler, the elephant god. He reads between the lines to paint us a very, very vivid picture of what it must have been like in Darius's army while it stood around all night. And I'm quoting here because this is just such a great quote. This is all conjecture based on Kistler's knowledge of elephants. And I just think it's super impressive. So I put it in here. The dark night of September 30th dealt a logistical blow to Darius's elephant scheme. Fatigue among both the horses and elephants led to the pachyderm retreat in the darkness. Elephants are acutely habituated to routines. When their normal activities are changed, they become confused or belligerent. Even the skills of the mahouts were rendered useless by the long hours broiling in the sun. Although elephants can sleep in a standing position, they cannot stand all day in the hot sun, then all night, and then again the next day, particularly in armor. They also may have been drunk. Like we've been saying, these elephants were lit a lot of the time. (laughs) In the line, they were unable to quote, comfort and allay each other's anxiety under stressful and traumatic conditions by very sounds and by placing their trunks into each other's mouths, the elephants became quite ill-tempered. On the eve of battle, when darkness settled, the elephant squadron was probably in a state of chaos. So... This gives us one very vivid extrapolation of what was probably happening with the elephants. And this is just from Kistler reading between the lines on all these ancient accounts based on his own knowledge of history and elephants. So as you might have guessed, Alexander won that battle and captured Darius's 15 elephants. And in the five years between the Battle of Gagamala and the day he faced King Porus down across the Hydaspes, he'd accumulated more elephants for his army, maybe around 130 but he hadn't seriously used them in battle yet. Faced with King Porus's 200 superbly trained, battle-ready war elephants, he realized that once again, he was completely unprepared. He decided he feared the monsoon-swollen river less than he feared a frontal assault on that elephant wall. And to be honest, I kind of agree with him. Yeah, that must have been a terrifying sight. Under cover of night, during a violent storm, Alexander crossed the Hydaspes 16 miles to the east, flanking Porus's army. And the classicist Mary Beard refers to this maneuver as, quote, going round the back. And it's like, I don't know, 40% of winning an ancient battle appears to be going around the back. And I feel like the other 40% is who has the high ground. And the rest of it is like luck or maybe the Bora, like with Alaric of the Goths at the Battle of Frigidus. So I had to work Alaric in somehow. Oh my god, you can't have a podcast without a mention of Alaric of the Visigoths, Jenny's ancient history boyfriend. He is totally my ancient history boyfriend. He's not does not belong in this story, though. The water was too high for Alexander to bring his own elephants over. Plus, he was trying to be sneaky. He even left a subordinate at camp dressed in his clothes so Porus' spies would think that he was still there. And elephants are not good at sneaking, so Alexander left them in the camp. Horus's 200 war elephants met him the next morning, on a field made muddy by torrential rains. King Porus himself rode an elephant, wearing a flashy suit of armor so his soldiers could see him easily. Alexander charged out of the forest with half of his army, leaving the other half hidden. When the hidden half charged Porus's flank, the enemy cavalries clashed. And here's the thing about horses. 
They won't go near elephants unless they've been very carefully trained. Alexander's mountain regiment was not getting anywhere close to King Forrest's elephants. That left the infantry to deal with them alone. Okay, so Jen, I'm going to ask you to close your eyes for a second. Okay, closed. And use your imagination. Clicking it on. Imagine you're a foot soldier in Alexander the Great's infantry. You wake up in the morning expecting to fight some guys, maybe some guys on horseback, and then you find yourself on the battlefield in hand-to-hand combat with an elephant. No. (laughs) That's it? You just nope out? (laughs) Nope out. (laughs) We've already been over this. Me and the elephants are berserkers. (laughs) I tend to frenzy in battle. I am not doing this. (laughs) She gets drunk and she frenzies in battle. I've been there. I've seen it happen. (laughs) So, all right. So let's talk about what you've got in your hands. If you're in Alexander's infantry, and this is another example of Alexander just getting lucky because you're actually ahead of the game. You have some really good elephant fighting tools. In one hand, you have a sarissa. This is a really long spear, about 13 to 20 feet long. And in the other, if you're lucky, which you are, because we've been over this, you have a copus, which is a heavy single-edged sword, kind of like a big machete. You also have javelins, and these are great elephant fighting tools. Okay, so this elephant is coming at you. He's wearing armor. He's got a war tower on his back. He's got giant tusks. The towers contained three soldiers each, wielding bows and javelins. Porus's elephants were outfitted with spikes or swords on their tusks, and some accounts say that the tusk swords were smeared with poison. That elephant has a long muscular trunk, and it is trained to use it to kill, and it is high, and it's in a bad mood, and it's in a killing frenzy. So after you get over your initial nope, Here's how this worked out for many soldiers in the Macedonian army that fought the elephants. And this is taken from Diodorus. And these are the people who did not nope out like me. You couldn't really nope out. I mean, where would you go? No, it's true. Eventually, you just got to take a swig of that wine you've got in that flask and uh, get in there and start killing. I mean, if the elephants are drinking, you should also be drinking. Otherwise, you're not going to be on the same page. Yeah. And to be honest, like maybe you just reach this place where you're both drunk and you're like, let's be friends and cuddle. I don't know. I don't think that's how must works. I mean, I don't know. Maybe those male elephants were just very aggressive cuddlers. Maybe that was the whole thing. (laughs) I suspect it wasn't, guys. (laughs) So let's get back to what actually happened. This is a direct quote. Some of the Macedonians were trodden underfoot, armor and all, by the beasts and died, their bones crushed. Others were caught up by the elephant's trunks and lifted high, were dashed back down to the ground again, dying a fearful death. Many soldiers were pierced through by the tusks and died instantly, run through the whole body. So how do you fight that? The first thing to realize here is that this is a group activity. If you're alone, you're probably toast. And here is another one. Here's another warning for my dad. Dad, it's time to take another tea and whiskey break. My dad's going to be drunk by the end of this episode, like the war elephants. Well, hey, then he'll be ready to fight war elephants. I know. We have prepared him well. Dad, if you're ever in a situation where you find yourself in a dark alley with an elephant. A war elephant. Hope you have some friends, number one. Your first step is to divide your team into two groups. One group distracts the elephant by hurling javelins. Aim for the eyes. That's the most vulnerable part. If the elephant gets close, you can use your sarissa to stab at the people on the elephant's back. And there is no way a sword or shorter spear can reach a target on elephant back, but the long range of the sarissa gives you the reach. Don't bother trying to stab the guys in the towers. Instead, go for the driver. He's the guy sitting on the elephant's neck. Not just anyone can control an 
an elephant, the Mahouts were all very specialized and they had these very deep bonds with their elephants that took months and even years of training to build. If you kill the Mahout, that elephant is essentially uncontrollable until it undergoes a long period of training and trust building with a new person. Also, elephants, like we said before, would sometimes frenzy when their Mahouts died, going nuts and trampling everything in sight, including their own side. This may or may not be good for you. Hopefully, the elephant does not go nuts in your direction. If the elephant grabs you with its trunk, go for the trunk with your sword. Those trunks are strong but extremely sensitive. There are accounts of soldiers getting themselves out of a trunk squeeze by hacking at the trunks with their swords. Okay, so this is what Team A is doing, attacking the animal head on. But say like me, you're on Team B. And while all this is going on, you'll be running in among the elephant's legs and attempting to hamstring it. You've got your single-edged, heavy hacking blade, and that will serve you well. Watch out for the ground crew. Horus's elephants had a team of four soldiers to each elephant guarding the legs. You'd have to take those guys out first. This strategy worked to the Hydaspes because as Porus's elephants waded deeper into Alexander's infantry, they became separated from their ground teams that were supposed to guard their legs. According to Diodorus, quote, As javelins began to find their marks in the sides of the great beasts, and they felt the pains of the wounds, the Indian riders were no longer able to control their movements. The elephants veered and, no longer manageable, turned upon their own ranks and trampled friendly troops. King Porus's elephant took great care of him in battle. Remember, King Porus was also riding an elephant. He was not just riding an elephant. He was riding a very bling elephant. He was blinged out so that everybody could see him from a long distance away. Plutarch tells us, quote, During the whole battle, the elephant gave particular care for the king, whom as long as he was strong and in a condition to fight, he defended him with great courage, repelling those who set upon him. As soon as he perceived him overpowered with his numerous wounds and the multitude of darts that were thrown at him to prevent his falling off, he softly knelt down and began to draw out the darts with his proboscis. That's so sweet. His proboscis is his trunk, right? Yeah. Weirdly, in the ancient sources, they use the word proboscis a lot when they're referring to the trunk. Okay. So that's so sweet. Yeah. He's a friend. This is A real friend will do this for you. A real friend. I, I want a war elephant. He'll stay with me at the end. Chen, if you're ever stabbed by javelins, I will pull out those javelins with my proboscis. True friendship. Yeah, it's beautiful. <laughs> Let's go get human gall cocktails and call it a day. <laughs> so, so happily, both Porus and his elephant lived. And Alexander was so impressed with Porus's bravery that he allowed him to stay regent of his defeated kingdom. And he was equally impressed with the elephant's courage, naming him Ajax and gilding his tusks with gold rings. After this battle, Alexander's infantry was in serious shock. They had suffered more losses against these elephants than in any other battle, and they did not want to go through that again. Right, so Alexander really wanted to continue east, to march to the great outer sea like he'd planned. But his army was just not having any of this. Spies reported that King Porus was not that important of a king, and that the real powers in the area could put as many as 4,000 elephants in the field. Alexander reportedly begged and pleaded with his officers to keep going, but his troops just were, nope, his troops were noping right out. I mean, that's sensible, guys. It totally makes sense. They mutinied. It wasn't defeat in battle, but his own men at the prospect of facing more war elephants that forced him to lay down the eastern borders of his kingdom. So what happened to Porus' surviving war elephants? 
After this battle, they joined Alexander's army. They accompanied him home to Babylon, and for the next three years, Alexander did not use them in war. Instead, he used them as status symbols. Alexander stationed his elephants all around his pavilion to guard him and impress visitors. And this duty was probably not as cushy for the elephants as it looked. The sun in Babylon was brutal, and the elephants were forced to stand fully armored, For those three years, the elephants must have been hot, exhausted, grouchy, and bored out of their minds. And I mean, I really hope they got drunk sometimes. Poor babies. I feel bad for the elephants. I know. You're right, Jen. You walk by Alexander's pavilion, you see those elephants, and you think, man, those elephants could use a drink. Yeah. Someone should just bring them a beer, right? Beer. I mean, some cold water, but a beer would be better. Because the water wasn't great in the ancient world. So a nice ice cold Corona with a lime in it. (laughs) Could we give them a margarita? Maybe some of them would like the teensy little drinks with umbrellas in them and stuff. Yeah, let's give the war (laughs) elephants cocktails. I agree. Like really girly cocktails. (laughs) (laughs) If any of you want to draw a picture of that, we'd love to see it. (laughs) We would love to see a war elephant with a very girly cocktail in its trunk. (laughs) Alexander died in 323 BC. His elephants walked in his funeral procession, no doubt formidably armored and brilliantly painted. This marked the end of their sabbatical from war because Alexander's true companions were already preparing to fight to the death in the giant decades-long cage match that was the War of the Diadochi. From here, King Porus' elephants saw frequent, unrelenting battle. Each time their commanding general got defeated, they'd be passed over to the winner's side. They were used to tear down fortifications, stomp rebelling armies underfoot, and rend enemy soldiers limb from limb. Suddenly, every army in the War of the Diadochi had to have its own elephant corps. It became an elephant arms race. Six years after Alexander's death in 317 BC, Alexander's mother, Olympias, who was a total badass babe. Jenny, we have to do an episode on her. So Olympias, the badass babe, was desperate to put Alexander's young son on the throne. She had over a hundred of the boy's relatives and rivals executed, eliminating his competition, and then fled to the city of Pydna with King Porus's elephants. Alexander's boyhood friend Cassander followed her there and besieged the city until its people turned cannibal in the streets. And that is a typical siege tactic. Hunger is a weapon. There was no food for the elephants. Olympias tried feeding them sawdust to keep them alive, but it didn't work. I mean, there wasn't a lot of nutritional value in sawdust, guys. Right. So the last of King Porus's great elephants starved in their stables, and that's just heartbreaking. Yeah, but maybe not the last. Over 400 years after the Battle of the Hydaspes, a Greek traveler encountered an old elephant in the town of Taxila back in the land of five rivers. This is King Porus's old stomping grounds. There were gold rings on the animal's tusks bearing this inscription. Alexander, the son of Zeus, dedicates Ajax to the sun. People were worshipping the elephant like a god, anointing it with oil and hanging garlands around its neck. They explained that this elderly elephant was the very one that once carried King Porus in the Battle of Hydaspes and had been honored by Alexander for his courage. Now, there is absolutely no way that an elephant could live for 400 years, but... But maybe. But maybe. But maybe. (laughs) Well, I'd like to think that at least one of these courageous old veterans was allowed a peaceful retirement, the faithful companion of old King Porus, who had defended him so bravely... And that this was maybe his descendant. It's nice to think that maybe there's a happy ending for one of the elephants in here. Especially the bravest one who defended his king and has gold tusks and is still really bling 400 years later. Right? Yeah. And on that note... Then this is a surprisingly 
not terrible note to end on. Might be terrible still, I don't know. Oh no, I like to imagine that Ajax is still wandering around somewhere with his gold tusks. And one day, if I ever go traveling, I'll get to see him anointed in oil. He's probably in a bar regaling everyone with his war stories. I mean, the thing about the thing about immortal Ajax is you just never know when he's going to turn up. <laughs> he might be at the other end of the bar <laughs> nursing a girly cocktail, regaling everybody with his war stories. I mean, I would be down to buy him around. I would totally buy him around. That's it for today, guys. If you spot Ajax somewhere, please let us know on social media because we'd love to hear his war stories. Buy him a drink. He needs a drink. Definitely needs a drink. So we will see you in two weeks for part two of War Elephants because if you thought this was the whole story, you were wrong. It's War Elephants part two, The Reckoning. Definitely not The Reckoning. One day, guys, she'll let me name part two The Reckoning. I'm never going to let you name anything The Reckoning. It will happen, guys. It'll happen. Don't hold your breath. Let us know on social media you want something named The Reckoning. It's the only way it'll happen. (laughs) Please feel free to follow us on Twitter. We're at Ancient Hist with a T fan. And we're on Instagram and Facebook as Ancient History Fangirl. And check out our website, ancienthistoryfangirl.com. And you can find us on Stitcher, iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, and wherever else you find your podcasts. But before you guys go, we thought we'd alert you to some things you can do to help us keep the podcast going. In order to stay up all night researching, editing, falling down history rabbit holes, impersonating Alexander the Great on Tinder, and bringing you amazing stories, we need to stay caffeinated or we need to stay boozed up. Coffee and booze ain't cheap. Definitely not cheap. So that is why you can now buy us a coffee on Ko-Fi. Is it Ko-Fi? Are we calling it Ko-Fi or coffee? So I'm going to call it coffee, but it's spelled K-O-F-I. So it looks like Ko-Fi to me. Sorry. Anyway, you can go to our website. Look in the bottom left corner for the button that says buy us a latte. Click on that button and the rest is super easy. And we appreciate every little bit of help we get. It really does help us keep going. And we do want to shout out to um, the first person who bought us a coffee, and that is Captain Tom. That's my dad. Thank you, dad. He didn't sign it, Captain Tom, guys. I I do that. No one calls him that except Jen. (laughs) I think it probably embarrasses him and I should stop, but I'm a terrible human being. He's probably just rolling his eyes right now. Um, so <laughs> thank you. Don't forget to subscribe, to rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts. We've already got some reviews up now. And if you enjoy what we're doing, please do leave us a review. It makes all the difference in the world. Yeah, it really helps us get found and heard. And we really appreciate it. Thanks again. And we will see you in two weeks. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at luckylandslots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18+. Plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.